I don't know about you, but that carol always has a powerful effect on me and I was tingling at the back of my neck. Uh, that particular performance, that was a powerful performance of that great carol. Let's turn together to Acts chapter 22. And uh, we're breaking in to the experience of the Apostle Paul, who has been put in the position where he has to make a defense of himself before a mob of people who are baying for his life and have already manhandled him and tried to kill him. And the mob having been silenced, he's been asked to give a speech and he has delivered that speech. We looked at it last time. It was a good speech. It was respectful, affirming, sensitive to the feelings and the traditions of the assembled listener. No one could question his credentials academically or as a Jewish leader. He had a good background. No one could doubt that his career as a leader among the Jews was an outstanding career. And for those who were anti-Christian, no one could question the fact that Paul had not been at one time the foremost of anti-Christian persecutors. And everything was going famously until he suggested that Christians, and he in particular, had been sent by Jesus to the Gentiles, to the Goyim, to the nations outside of Israel. That was what threw them into a murderous rage. We know that at this time in Jerusalem there was a lot of anti-Gentile feeling. And they exploded in this feeling at these words. Bad enough for them to be told that the Jesus that they had rejected and in whose death they were implicated, though he was put to death by the Romans, was in fact the long-promised Messiah. It was quite another thing for them to be told that this long-expected Messiah was now, because of their rejection of him, being offered on equal terms to the Gentiles. It was this idea, this message, that enraged them. It was as if they were children who'd been given an expensive toy to play with and for some reason wouldn't play with it. Left it on the shelf, untouched. Who had suddenly found out that their mother had taken that toy and given it to one of the neighbor's little boys. And flown into a rage because of this. I don't want it, but I don't want you to have it either. That was the, the kind of thinking that was going on there. And it was this rage, this jealousy that is unleashed. The Apostle Paul recognized this jealousy that motivated the Jews of his day, the unbelieving Jews of his day. And later on, in one of his writings, in the book of Romans in chapter 11, he hoped, he expressed the hope, that one day this very jealousy, this jealousy for God's honor to have God for themselves, would one day work in their favor. That one day, he hoped, the Jews would be jealous to have God in the Messiah, in Christ, for themselves, and trust in Him, the Lord Jesus, for their salvation. But this 
wasn't that day. This wasn't that day. And so it's that background. You see in verse 22 that we read up to this word, they listened to him. And they wanted rid of him at that point. Now that's the context then in which we look at the apostle now as he interacts first with the Roman tribune and then with the Sanhedrin and then ultimately in verse 11 of chapter 23 with Jesus. So let's look at those three aspects of the unfolding story. First of all, there's the apostle and the state. You can see the problem that the state had, that is the empire, the Roman state, because they were very sensitive to maintaining order in this great far-flung empire that they had built up. And the Roman commander had doubtless had high hopes that Paul's speech to the, to the assembled people, especially as he spoke in their native language, that that speech might have pacified the crowds. But instead, apparently, this attempt, and it appeared as if Paul was speaking very uh, calmly and, and intelligently and reassuringly and sensitively to the people. Instead of this, there was even a greater disturbance than there had been before. The command is in the dark. What is going on? What are the issues? What is really at stake here? And so the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, verse 24, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. This Roman tribune was a bit like Jack Bauer. I haven't mentioned him for a while, and I thought I'd better throw his name in before the end of the year, in case you thought I'd forgotten him. But the tribune had this idea that what you did was, if you wanted information out of somebody, you didn't waterboard them, you flogged them. And flogging was a desperate, desperate thing. You know, the Apostle Paul had already endured beatings and stonings and imprisonment. He'd been beaten by the Jews several times, but he had never had a flogging. This was his first. It was his first. I'm sure he would have done without it, but this was the first time. And in scourging, the scourge was the flagellum, leather thongs attached to the ends of which were metal pieces were used to flay the back of the victim. Victims very often died of this flogging. And uh, if they didn't die, then they were left with terrible scars and psychological damage. And it was this that was about to take place. Look at verse 25. It was at this point that the apostle produces his ace card. I know that's worldly to talk about cards in church, but he produces his ace card. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, it says, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now we're very familiar today with the whole business and process of citizenship. You come into the United States, you have a whole series of things that you have to go through before you can get citizenship. The first great challenge is getting in. Once you're in on a kind of temporary visa, you're then allowed to apply for a green card. I know all about this. It costs a lot of money in order to do this. Church has been very helpful there. And you go through this whole process, and then at the end of that, you're given a green card, and you keep that for about five or six years, and then and only then can you apply to become a citizen. The whole rigmarole. In the Roman Empire, it was very hard to become a citizen of Rome. You were either born a citizen or you had to achieve some great 
heroic action on behalf of the Roman state, or you had to pay a lot of money, a really lot of money in order to become a Roman citizen. You can see that in verses 26 to 28. This Roman centurion, the tribune, uh, who, who, went to, who went, came to him, says to Paul, the tribune says to Paul, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. In other words, I'm only a citizen because I paid for it. I bought it and it cost a lot. Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. I one above you. I'm a citizen by birth. Somewhere along the line in the past, Paul's father or his grandfather had been wealthy enough to purchase Roman citizenship for himself. Paul probably came from that kind of wealthy background. That's the reason he was able to afford to go to Jerusalem and study in the best university that there was within Judaism. And the centurion's response then is to realize that Paul is speaking the truth. You see, there are two things. If you punished a Roman citizen without due process, it was a death penalty. And if somebody claimed to be a Roman citizen, who were not, falsely, then they would be put to death. So he, he takes Paul seriously here. He understands immediately that Paul is telling the truth, and he commands him to be unbound. In fact, you can see the reaction. If you look at verse 29, you see the reaction of the soldiers. It was a whole band of them, a thousand of them. They drew back in fear. They were afraid to touch him. They knew execution would happen if they had scourged Paul. Now, this action of the apostle in appealing to Caesar is something we need to just pause and look at, because here the apostle in the state has something to teach us. Paul the Apostle and Peter, both of them, encourage Christians to submit to human governments and to human governors as God's instruments of justice. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul, sees human government as being very limited. It has limited goals and objectives. Uh, they are largely to discover and then charge and then punish criminals to defend the innocent and to defend the state from outside intervention, from attack. In fact, the Bible gives them a very high honor. It calls them the ministers of God. The very same language that is used of Christian ministers is used of the ministers of state. Back in the, in the United Kingdom, a lot of the mechanism of UK government was actually created by our very best of men. He was an Englishman, but apart from that, he was a very good man, and his name was Oliver Cromwell. And if you visit the Houses of Parliament, which I had the privilege of doing many times when I've gone to speak, and, and you see behind the stage, you see the influence of Cromwell all over the place. And one of the places where his influence is noted is in the checks and balances of the government, but also because those representatives of the state the high offices of the state are described as ministers of state. The prime minister is the first among equals, among the ministers that govern the country. And he used that word because that's the word the apostle Paul used. He based it on the language of the New Testament. They are the servants of God, not in the church, but in the state. And they have a responsibility and they have a privilege. 
They have a responsibility to govern well and they have the privilege of exercising the sword, that is punishment, on evildoers who break the law of God. And the state has a series of, uh, gives freedoms to people, expresses the rights of people, it states the responsibilities of people, and these freedoms and rights and responsibilities have the force of law. And we, like the Apostle Paul, have the right to expect government officials to abide by the law and to live up to their high calling. The Apostle Paul, we know, was prepared to suffer. He was prepared to suffer at the hand of the Jews. He was prepared to suffer at the hand of the Gentiles. It wasn't that he is trying to avoid suffering here, but he's teaching us a lesson by his very response. And he's saying to us as the church, he is saying, if you live in a legal structure, you have every right to use that legal structure to your advantage and to the advantage of the gospel. You don't just say to the state, if it breaks its own law, comes along to you, punches you in the face. You don't say to the state, punch me again. You say to the state, where till I get my lawyer? Because what you're doing is breaking your own law. This is what Paul is saying to this leader. He's saying, you're going to break your own law if you scourge me. I'm a Roman citizen. The law says Roman citizens should not be punished without charge. And the law says a Roman citizen should never be subjected to the flagellum. You're going to break your own law. Now, I think this is important for us. We should not hesitate to challenge those in power who are willing to use their authority unjustly according to their own laws. This is something to say to us in the way we relate to flawed governments in our own day. There are two great temptations, aren't there, in relation to the government. One is to become compliant and the other is to become defiant. We are compliant to the degree to which we are intimidated by the powers that be and we are defiant in relation to, how, to the degree to which we are aggravated by the powers that be. Now, I, I have to tell you that this is an... I'm speaking to myself. I wrote this and I thought, I'm going to leave this out. This is getting too near the bone. When I'm aggravated by the government, I become defiant. And I say things which I shouldn't probably say about the government. I don't do them in church. I'm very good here so far. And you'll deal with me, I'm sure, if I'm not. But what the apostle is setting us an example here, he's utterly confident, you see, that, that Jesus is in control of his life, that Jesus is the Lord of all, and in that confidence he's calm and composed, and he's God-glorifying, and he's God-exalting, and he uses the law against those responsible for upholding the law to prevent them from breaking the law. That's important. Now this Roman commander was relieved not to have broken the law, but he's perplexed as to why Paul's presence had caused a riot, the shouting of the mob. He hadn't been able to discern what they were on about. Uh, letting the prisoner talk to the crowd had not produced any answers. And because he was a Roman citizen and a Roman centurion could not submit Paul to torture, he had to get information one way or another. So he brings him to the Sanhedrin. So here we move on to the second thing, the apostle and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest court in Judaism. It's responsible as the council within Judaism for directing the affairs of the nation. 
And there are priests and scholars and lawyers and elders gathered together, Pharisees and Sadducees being the two major parties gathered in the council. And I want you to notice how Paul behaves here. There is actually not the degree of uh, submission that he shows to the state here. He is talking to people who are his religious equals. And he speaks in those terms. He looks directly, intently into their eyes. He, he eyeballs them, you know. It's what I do from here. I can see you. Remember that. If we had better lighting, I could see you better. But we don't. But that will come. If I keep on talking about it, that will come. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Here is a Jew speaking to Jews, a leader speaking to leaders. Above all, here is a man who knew that he was speaking in the presence of God. I want you to see this. He knew he is living in the presence of God. In fact, the opening words that he speaks show that he was living his life in the sight of God and in obedience to God. Back in chapter 26, verse 19, or later rather, in chapter 26, verse 19, he says that he had been obedient to the heavenly vision. And what he means is made clear here when he says that his conscience is clear of any blame with regard to his conduct as a Christian. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean, first of all, is he's not claiming to be perfect. He knows his limits. He knows the limits of his own self-awareness. He's quick to confess the Lord is the ultimate judge. Here is a man who's not trusting in his own self-righteousness. He is trusting in Christ's righteousness. We know this about the Apostle Paul. We know that ultimately he saw himself as a man in Christ, covered by the righteousness of Christ, resting in Christ's love, and, but he, and he has a Christ-centered vision. But he's also a man who knows that he lives his life under the eye of God, for the sake of God. He speaks later of his conviction that he once thought he was doing the will of God when he was opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But all of that has changed. He had encountered the risen Lord. But what he is saying to these people is this. I know that in this visit to Jerusalem, I have not violated the Torah, the law, and I have not defiled the temple, and I have not broken Caesar's laws. He knew that. He could say that in those areas, he is utterly blameless. He had purified himself before going into the temple, according to the Torah. He'd, he, had, he had acknowledged and he had even helped people become paid for people to be circumcised according to the Torah. And he had not broken any of Caesar's laws. He knows that. His conscience at this level is blameless in the eyes of God. And he says it. He says it clearly. Now, can you always trust your conscience? You know you can't always trust your conscience. You know that our conscience must be regularly tested against the Word of God. We can deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves into believing that all, everything is right when everything is not right. Conscience is regularly to be tested against the revelation of God in Holy Scripture. We learn this from Martin Luther. You remember when he is called to the Diet of Worm to revoke his uh, convictions? He refused to revoke his convictions. He, he sought to speak to the emperor and the delegation from Rome, and he said this, Unless I am convinced 
by sacred scripture or by evident reason I cannot recant for my conscience is held captive by the Word of God and to act against my conscience is neither right nor safe now what Luther was not saying he was not saying that conscience is the master he was not saying that he was just held by his conscience so that what he felt was right was right this was not a subjective thing do you notice what he says he says his conscience is held captive by the Word of God and that on the basis of that to act against that kind of conscience gripped by the Word of God to act against that kind of conscience would be neither right nor safe Luther's and Paul's conscience was in the grip of the grace of God it was under the direction of the Word of God once you move away from the Word of God it's possible for a conscience to become hardened so that we can justify evil or error this happens when we allow us to, when we allow ourselves to reason or behave in a way that is disconnected from the truth of God some people think reason stands outside of as an objective reality outside of the truth of God's revelation this is a great lie that many materialistic scientists have bought into that somehow or other man's reason is unaffected by sin but our reason is fallen our reason has to be held captive to the Word of God our conscience has to be held captive to the Word of God we dare not trust in reason or in conscience disconnected from the Word of God or we'll go into error of all kinds Paul's conscience is tied to the Word of God he is not encouraging here a kind of Jiminy Cricket approach to conscience that says let conscience be your guide I'd sing it but you wouldn't want that so the apostles claim to be to have a conscience before God is what provokes the reaction of the high priest who orders verse 2 commands those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth I think the conscience question was taken by the high priest Ananias as being a reflection on him and Josephus who is a Jewish scholar criticizes this particular man Ananias the high priest for dishonoring his office through greed and violence he was known for this and so Paul responds he doesn't know he's a high priest this period it's, a, it's been called quickly probably nobody had their official robes on so therefore nobody was e easily identified they were all in a state of agitation because they'd been called by the Roman Tribune and so Paul says in his most meek and mild you know seeker sensitive way that he had God will strike you dead you whitewashed wall are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck I just love it when Paul says it yeah. don't you just love it he's issuing a warning of divine judgment here he's echoing the law's covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28 the Lord will strike you his words by the way although he retracts the spirit in which they were given in a moment we'll see his words actually in the providence of God spell out what God is going to do to these leaders 
He is prophesying here. The Lord will strike you. The prophet Ezekiel uses this language of the whitewashed wall to portray something that looks stable on the outside, but which is rotten in the inside. The whole infrastructure of Judaism is going to fall apart. Their national life is going to collapse in the near future. Jesus had used this idea of whitewash when he talked about the Pharisees being whitewashed tombs to convey the hypocrisy of what they had were in the inside and what they were in the outside. The apostle was sure that this one, or was addressing this one who presumed to be a judge according to the law, who so flagrantly violated the law. In fact, if you look at the context, here is the Roman authority who realizes he's going to break the law and stops and insists on discovering the truth. And here are these Roman, the Jewish officials, and they're not doing the same thing as the Romans. They're acting worse than the pagans. It was an affront to the glory of God. Well, Paul's rebuke provokes its own rebuke. Look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Exodus 22 said, do not utter blasphemies against God or curse the ruler of your people. When Paul realized this was the high priest, he retracted, he repented of the way he'd spoken the words. It's very interesting, isn't it? Here's the apostle Paul who delights in his freedom from the law as the basis of salvation, but who nonetheless felt gripped by the law of Christ. And Christ had taught his people to respect rulers for their office's sake. We're tempted, aren't we? We're tempted in the Western world because we're a democracy and because we can elect or unelect our leaders. We're, con- we're tempted to treat them with contempt. I know this. I confess this. We are tempted to treat them with contempt in the way we speak of them. Intemperate language. I am all the time. Some of you are too, I know. And... The Bible says we are to honor people for their office's sake. Even though they may... Let me apply this to the church, because here it's Israel that's under, under the spotlight. Israel represents the church. And here were the leaders of the church of the day. And these people are abandoning the truth, and they're rejecting the Messiah, and they're behaving in this disgraceful way. And yet here is the Apostle Paul, and because he's the high priest within Judaism, he respects his office and he retracts his words. It's very hard, isn't it? Do you know, one of the things that were built into the Reformed confessions at the time of the the Reformation was this very difficult principle. You find it all over the place, written by the Reformers, that we're to respect the office of minister or bishop or whoever title they use, for their office's sake, and we are to believe that the Word of God is still the Word of God when the Word of God is being spoken by someone who doesn't believe it or doesn't obey it. The Word of God is still the Word of God. That the character of the minister does not affect the purity and power of the Word of God. That's a frightening thing, by the way. But that's one of the things that we recognized at the Reformation. 
Well, it's at this point in the discussion with the Sanhedrin that Paul states the issue that is at stake. We know, we know from ancient forensic defense speeches that it was normal to have a statement up front, right at the very beginning, of what the main question was. And so when Paul perceived one part were Sadducees, one were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Here is the issue. Here is the statement. Up front, this is the legal question about which I am on trial. Here it is. It is with respect to the hope. This is in verse 6. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Some people say he's, do, he's trying to stir things up. Uh, he's not trying to stir things up here. That might be a secondary idea that he had in his mind, but his primary thing is to state the issue. And there was the issue. The hope of the resurrection from the dead. We know this from the writings of Paul. We know it from his sermons and acts. We know it from all the teaching of the New Testament that Paul believed the resurrection was the foundation of everything that he believed and taught. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. The whole claim of Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, well, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit. They didn't believe in life after death. They were the rationalists of their day. They didn't believe there was anything in the Bible to think or to speak or, or, or suggest that there would be a final judgment, that there would be any kind, of, any kind of consciousness after death or any kind of final assize by which we stand before God. Jesus confronted them with this. He challenged them. You remember, he spoke from the book of Exodus, and he said to the Sadducees on one occasion, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can be sure that God who is the living God never identifies himself with dead people. If he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he means he is, which means they are still alive. And he makes that point clear. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in the final resurrection as Israel's ultimate hope. For them, the Creator who made us as psychosomatic unity would not allow death to have the last word. The whole point of what God has done in making us a spiritual, fleshly unity is that the point of redemption and salvation ultimately is to raise us so that we are a spiritual physical unity again physical resurrection from the dead well this didn't help because as soon as he mentions the resurrection now they're fighting among themselves this poor Roman commander is not getting anywhere with this whole thing he now knows the issue and he can see that plainly because they start fighting among themselves verse 9 there's a clamor that arose sharp dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and everything falls apart. Well, the last verse that we looked at, verse 11, we see the apostle not in the state, Paul in the state, Paul in the Sanhedrin. Now we see Paul and the Savior. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you testify to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome.
Now here's a good insight, isn't it, to what witness means, what testimony means. Witness and testimony in the Bible is to bear witness to the facts about Jesus. We sometimes talk about, in Christian circles, kind of the in-buzz language is that we talk about giving our testimony. Usually that means giving my story, my story of what God means to me or what God has done for me or what I feel about God. But actually in the Bible, witness and testimony are to do with me saying what God has done objectively. These facts, the facts about Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and so on. These are the primary things to which I bear testimony. And what the Lord Jesus says to the apostle is, you're doing the right thing. You've given your testimony. You've testified to the facts about Jesus. You see, the great test of faithful witness is not that everything starts to go famously, and to go well for us. The great test of being a faithful witness is not that everything falls into place. Paul was doing the will of God. That's what Jesus confirms there. He is doing the will of God. He is following the will of God. He has done what he was sent to do. He has testified about the facts in Jerusalem. And now you're going to do it in Rome also. You're going to testify to the facts there. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. And sometimes the will of God throws up obstacles, difficulties, contradictions, opposition, even suffering. The apostle had people telling him that he uh, should not have gone to Jerusalem. He had people suggesting to him that the vision that Jesus had given him, telling him that he was going to go there and suffer, was a hint that he shouldn't go and suffer. There were all kinds of voices suggesting to the apostle Paul, maybe you've done the wrong thing, maybe you've got yourself into this mess. And here the Lord Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, you've done the right thing. You've done the right thing. You've borne testimony. I've seen your witness. I know your heart. I see your longing for me. I've seen your longing for the gospel. I know your motivation. You've borne witness to me in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to take you to Rome and you're going to bear witness to me there. You might have expected Jesus to say to Paul, well, that was good work, Paul. Now you can go and retire somewhere. You know, I'm going to take you home or take you somewhere. I'm going to get you released. And I mean, I got Peter out of prison. I can get you out of prison, and I can take you to a nice Greek island somewhere where you can relax in the sun, sip your martinis, and, you know, enjoy yourself for the rest of your life. No, I'm going to take you to Rome, Paul. (laughs) Rome's going to be worse. Rome's going to be worse. He's going to be executed in Rome. Been to the place where he was executed. But he's in the will of God. And Jesus is coming alongside this man. Do you notice this? You may not experience the vision that Paul had. But I want to reassure you this evening. As you bear witness to the facts about Jesus. The Lord Jesus by his Holy Spirit is as truly, as really, as personally alongside you in the conflict in the suffering, in the antagonism, in the struggle, however weak you feel, however powerless you feel, he's there. He's there. And he's your strength. That's just the way he is. He will never leave you. 
and he will never forsake you. Take courage. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as your people who find ourselves sometimes in a position where we're challenged by the authorities and we wonder what steps to take. Should we roll over? Should we turn the other cheek? Should we follow due process if that's open to us? You've taught us tonight that we are perfectly at liberty to use due process and to abide by the laws of the land in the way in which we conduct ourselves in the world. And when we're before the church, even a church that is deviant, a church that has lost its way, a church that has rejected the Savior, there are some people who watch this webcast and they're in such churches. And we pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to maintain a good profession, to tell the facts about Jesus and to stick to those facts. And above all, we thank you that in all of this, you are present with your people. And we ask you to be present with us now to the praise of your glory. Amen.